Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hello and welcome to another installment of History Hack. Uh, We are usually excited on this program and we are quite excitable, but Alina is literally bouncing off the walls. This is her dream come true. Alina, why is this your dream come true? My dream come true because we've got an ancient historian who is just awesome. So if you don't know who he is, you really should. We've got what you're saying. Exactly. Get out if you don't know who this is. (laughs) Um, and, and if you don't, go and get his books because he's awesome. Right, so we've got with us Paul Cartledge, who's an ancient historian, academic, author. He's currently a senior research fellow at Clare College, Cambridge, and a former professor of Greek culture at Cambridge University. He's published more than a dozen books. Trust me, way more than a dozen books. I'm not going to name them all because we'll be here all day and that would just be our podcast. But his most recent publications are Democracy, A Life, and Thebes, A Forgotten City of Ancient Greece, which is exactly what we're talking about today. Thebes and Alex is very excited so welcome Paul. Thank you very much both of you great to uh, meet you again in your case Alina and uh, to meet you Alex. Uh, A total rank amateur when it comes to classical stuff I am so I'm really looking forward to this as I confessed before we started recording the only reason I know Thebes exists is because it gets a reference in the Hercules cartoon Uh, but I'm really excited because it looked like a big important place in that and I don't know anything about it so first of all I guess we start right at the very beginning because lots of people might be like me Uh, first of all please tell us what is Thebes and where is it located? Right Thebes one has first of all to say uh, forget about Egypt and the trouble with uh, my subject is that uh, many people think, first of all, Tutankhamun, New Kingdom, Egypt, of which it was the capital. But Thebes is actually the English way of saying an ancient Greek name, Thebai. And the reason that we now use Greek names for Egyptian cities is that um, the Greeks and the Egyptians were in contact. Actually, Egyptian Thebes is mentioned in Homer, but more particularly, the Greeks, after Alexander the Great, conquered Egypt. And so, like many conquerors, they gave Greek names to what were Egyptian cities. So Egyptian Thebes is really waset. But as I say, for me, what's upsetting is more people, when they hear the name Thebes, they probably think Egypt. So forget about Egypt. Thebes in Greece is in central mainland Greece. It's about 90 kilometers, that's about 55 miles northwest of Athens by road, which is, uh, it's even uh, less as the crow flies. And by its position, in the middle of a very big plain, with um, a terrific, huge acropolis, which is defensible, those two things in combination meant, rather like Athens, Athens is in the middle of a plain, 
whacking great acropolis you've got the potential for economic development and defense and that's what you need if you're going to as the ancient greeks liked to do develop an individual what we call city state or citizen state the greek word is polis so thebes in mainland greece central mainland greece was one of about a thousand ancient greek city states or cities that's just to give you an idea the greek world was quite enormous it stretched out eventually as far west as spain and france as far east and north as what's today georgia at the eastern end of the black sea then alexander the great conquered the whole of the middle east conquered the persian empire so hellenism the greek world eventually extended as far as afghanistan and pakistan but we're going to focus on prehistoric late bronze age thebes and historic thebes down to the 4th century before well we say bc or before the common era oh, brilliant you know i just chucked this in there my family on my dad's side is descended from alexander's armies in afghanistan wow well northern afghanistan slash pakistan both sides of what is now a border but yeah Yes, yes, fascinating. Well, I can talk to you about that as well in another podcast. My uncle podcast. actually must talk because my uncle owns some land out there um, that apparently they camped on. So, yeah. Right, right. I wrote a book about Alexander earlier, so um, very interested. Yeah. I read it. That's why I read it because it was because uh, I was so interested. But um, there's part of part of his land involves a section of this lake, and if you look under the lake, you can see all these ruins. Wow. Okay. But when are we going beyond that yeah when are we going yeah <laughs> my uncle's always saying come over come over so yeah as soon as covid's over alina we can go and paddle around in the lake happy uh yes please thank you very happy <laughs> i want to um i want to say paul tell us a story because this is all about myth isn't it like how thebes was created what is actually the real story behind this myth and please do tell us this story Right. Well, in my uh, book and in various talks, I, I like to distinguish between two cities of Thebes. One is the city that really was uh, the city of history, if you like. The other one is the city of myth. And ancient Greek word myth just means a story. And in particular, a traditional tale. So in other words, one that's told over and over with variations, but a core survives. And that is thought to be so important and interesting that the the myth um, gets eventually written down. Thebes was, we don't know why, but incredibly productive of myths, including, of course, its own foundation myth. Pretty much every Greek city would have had a foundation story or myth. But the Theban one, I think it's unique. At least no one's told me that uh, it isn't because... Whereas most Greek cities, predictably, would have been founded by a Greek, Thebes was founded by a foreigner, a man called Cadmos, and he came from Tyre, which today is in Lebanon. not actually in very good nick, shall we put it that way, because of various wars and bombs and God knows what else. At any rate, he came from Tyre. So what was he doing in Greece? Why did he come to Greece? Because... Great father Zeus, that is the most powerful of all the Greek gods, who'd won his position by battle, by defeating an older generation of gods. And he occupied the highest mountain in Greece, which is Mount Olympus, together with his full sisters and brothers. And they ruled 
the Greek world from Mount Olympus, famously depicted in Homer's Iliad and so on. Well, Zeus had, shall we say, a roving eye. In fact, he was, uh, in by our standards, a rather disgusting person. Apart from incest, he um, was very prone to raping people that he found, women in particular, but not only women, uh, attractive. Well, one of these just happened to be the sister of Cadmos. Now, Cadmos wasn't any old Tyrian. He was a prince. And his sister, Princess, was called Europa. And here's the second irony. Not only was Thebes founded by a foreigner, Cadmos, but what we call Europe, the continent, was named after a Phoenician, non-Greek, a barbarian princess called Europa. Zeus disguised himself, he was prone to do this, in the form of a bull in order to both, um, well, one hates to think how quite he subdued Europa, but he carried her on his back, swimming from what, as I say, is now Lebanon to central Greece. If you pitch up in east mainland Greece, then you're not far from where Thebes is. Thebes did have access to the sea. And so the story is, that he was told to find uh, a bull, Cadmos, because, of course, the bull had (laughs) stolen his sister. Well, there's a roundabout tale. I won't go into all the details, but eventually he did rescue his sister. And instead of going back to Tyre, decided to uh, settle and put down roots and to found a city, and not only uh, a city, but a city just where Thebes is with its massive great Acropolis, which is named after him, the Cadmire. And in order to make it safe, this is all myth as opposed to history, <laughs> surrounded it with walls into which were seven gates included. And so this is the famous seven-gated themes of myth, which appears already in Homer's Iliad, the earliest text of ancient Greek literature. And it's in that Iliad that there is the reference made to Egyptian themes, which had 100 gates. I mean, it's extremely interesting that when Thebes is first mentioned in the first surviving work of Greek literature, it's actually rather downgraded by comparison with Egyptian Thebes, 100 gates. At any rate, Cadmos marries, he has, of course, to found a dynasty, a local girl called Harmonia. Harmony. And the wedding of Cadmos and Harmony became one of those, I hate the word, but I'm going to use it, iconic moments in early Greek myth history because all the Olympian gods and goddesses came down from Olympus to to join in the wedding celebration. So this isn't just a human wedding. It's a divinely blessed consecration of a founding city in Greece. Now, this is all Theban myth, but how many Theban works survive of myth? Homer is not in any way Theban literature. It's the earliest literature. The Thebans created four epic poems in the same meter as the Iliad and the Odyssey of Homer. None of them survives as such. Why? Because This is one of the paradoxes. The Thebans didn't manage to impose themselves as cultural leaders of all the Greeks. 
Greeks. The Greeks know that they're there. They're terribly important. They're in the Iliad, all that. But the epics that survive are actually ones created further east, probably in Asia Minor, and they become universal, pan-Hellenic. The Thebans never quite managed to uh, achieve that. So we are going to, because you are a historian, and we are going to move on to the actual history of Thebes. But before we do, can we just quickly look at what other myths are associated with Thebes? What does Oedipus have to do with this city? Right, I'm going to come on to Oedipus second, because he's in Theban myth history relatively late. In other words, I'm going to start you off with the story which um, both of you may have already read or seen, um, Euripides' Bacchae followers of Bacchus Dionysus, a play written in the 5th century BC, performed right at the end of the 5th century, of which the chorus, 15 men, but playing women, represent foreign mad women. They're called menads, and they are followers of Dionysus. Now, why is Dionysus associated with Thebes? Because his mum was from Thebes. So, like Heracles... Uh, he has a, a divine father and a human mother. Dionysus's mother was Semele. At any rate, the story as told by an Athenian playwright many centuries later, again, it's not a Theban production, it's not a Theban poem or play, it's a, an Athenian one. According to that, Dionysus is um, coming over from Asia Minor, from Lydia, with his followers, these mad Lydian women who are the chorus, and he's causing chaos because the women of Thebes, including a royal woman, that is the mother of Pentheus, who is the daughter of Cadmos, she falls for Dionysus. She thinks he's absolutely gorgeous. And what Dionysus does, now this is history as opposed to myth, he's the god of wine. He's the god of transformation. He's the god of ecstasy. Uh, he's the god of enthusiasm. All these Greek words um, relate to if you drink wine or if you drink too much neat wine, you tend to go a little bit bonkers. And on the other hand, look at it positively. What the drinking of alcohol does is it releases inhibition. And so people do things which they wouldn't otherwise do in normal, constrained social human circumstances. Sometimes good, but in this case, utter disaster. Pentheus, King Pentheus, grandson of Cadmos, who's an old man, he, he's handed over the, the throne. He's founded the city and then, as it were, retired. This is like Odysseus's father in the Odyssey. The grandson, very suspicious. What are these women, including my mother, doing? Going for this foreigner, this strange god. At any rate, Agave goes mad, and in her trance, she imagines that Pentheus is a wild animal. And together with her sister, Eno, and with other um, mad women, they tear Pentheus to pieces, including ripping his head off. And there is there a very wise uh, a kind of prophet, a kind of religious figure called Tiresias, and he knows what's going on. He's the only one who's so sort of smart that he can see the madness and, on the other hand, the reality. So gradually, gradually, Agave, the mother, comes out of her trance. She's holding 
Pentheus's head, of course, the mask that the actor had played, and suddenly realizes what she's done. Well, now, imagine you're a Theban creating that story about your city's original rulers. That would mean one thing to you. Imagine you're an Athenian. And you actually rather hate the Thebans because for nearly 30 years you've been fighting against them. They're your enemies. They're they're quite near and they're your enemies. Great, because it makes Thebes look like a terrible place of murder and mayhem and royal dynasty and total chaos. So the myths of Thebes are particularly interesting as they're generated by Thebes, but then they're taken up by non-Thebans. Well, that's one set of myths. You asked about Oedipus. Well, now, he is a later, within the myth history of early Thebes, a king of Thebes. How does he become king? Well, he's the son of the ruling king, who is called Laius. But Laius and his wife have consulted the Delphic Oracle which is, uh, as it were, a source of authority. You want to know about the future. You want to know whether you should do something or not do something or whether something might happen to your family. Or if your wife is pregnant, you go and ask, will our child have a good life? Whatever, whatever. Well, the answer that uh, Laius got on consulting the oracle was the son you are about to have will kill his father and marry his mother. What? So when Laius hears this, he does what um, in normal circumstances, ordinary human Greeks do if they don't wish or can't rear a child. Rather than killing it just outright, they what they call what we call, it's a bit of a euphemism, expose it. So it's uh, the child, which is Oedipus, when born, is given to um, a herdsman told to kill the child because they certainly don't want the child to grow up to kill his father and marry his mother. The herdsman is tender-hearted and he has a mate. When in ancient Greece um, you pasture your crops, in the summer you go up, in the winter you come down. It's called transhumans. So these two shepherds, one in the service of the king of Thebes, one in the service of the king of Corinth, meet each other. And the servant of the king of Thebes hands over Oedipus to the, the herdsman of the king of Corinth, imagining that that king, that herdsman, sorry, will put Oedipus to death. He doesn't. Because his master, the king of Corinth, is childless, no son to succeed. And that, of course, is a disaster in a hereditary monarchy. So the king of Corinth and his wife bring up Oedipus as if he were theirs. Oedipus therefore believes he is a Corinthian priest. Corinth is on the isthmus which joins the Peloponnese, the southern bit of Greece, to central mainland Greece. Then the story goes on, and it's not exactly clear to me why. Oedipus takes a trip, and he's travelling in uh, central Greece, and he comes to a crossroad. And lo and behold, blocking the way in front of him where he wants to go 
is an old man with a bunch of his um, servants in, in a cart. And for God's sake, get the F out of the way, Oedipus says. The old man happens to be King Laios, Oedipus's father. Oedipus is enraged when Laios will not get out of the way and Oedipus kills not only his father, but all the servants as well. We don't know how many, but uh, he then um, moves further north. And so he's on the way to Thebes. But outside Thebes is this terrifying monster, uh, a female monster called a sphinx with um, lion's um, claws and wings of an eagle, human, basically female body and so on. At any rate, she has uh, the ability to terrorise thieves, which she is doing, and causing plague, and it's in a very bad way. And so um, outside Thebes, Oedipus meets this terrifying monster who sets him a riddle and there are various versions of the riddle, the riddle of the Sphinx. The one that I tend to follow is what goes on four legs in the morning, two in the daytime and three in the evening? Oedipus answered correctly, a human being. As a baby, he or she crawls during the day, that is in the main lifetime, he or she walks on two legs, and in the evening needs a stick, in other words, in old age, to prop him or herself up. And so that's the answer. Anyway, as a result, the Thebans welcome uh, into Thebes Oedipus, Oedipus not knowing he is a Theban, and in fact, uh, the Theban heir apparent, um, they welcome him in and they grant him the widow of the man he has just killed, that is his own father, and that is his own mother. And hence he marries his own mother, who is, of course, at least 15 years older than him. It's a sort of Emmanuel Macron situation. And with her, his mother, he has four children, two boys, two girls, who are both his children and his half-brothers and half-sisters. Oedipus therefore commits incest, and what results from incest is bound to be bad. And the way it works out is that Oedipus finally discovers, thanks to Tiresias, that he is who he is, that he is actually Oedipus, and that he has killed his father and married his mother. He puts his eyes out, he blinds himself, he can't bear to face the reality. And he hands over the throne, uh, first of all, to his two sons, this is the normal dynastic succession, who claim or who swear that they will rule in turn. Your turn first, Eteocles, then it'll be my turn, Polynices. Well, strangely enough, Eteocles <laughs> refuses to hand over. Polynices goes into revolt and um, summons his mates, and this is the um, cause of the famous seven against Thebes myth, which ultimately gives us our magnificent seven uh, of modern um, um, cinema legend. At any rate, he fails. Polynices does not manage to get back into Thebes and wrest the throne from Eteocles, and in fact is killed. I said there were two brothers and two sisters. Two sisters are Antigone and Ismene. Antigone 
is appalled when her uncle, that is her mother's brother, Creon, has taken over the throne because of the civil war. He's assumed the, the command. And the two brothers, by the way, have killed each other. I should have said Eteocles is dead. And Creon issues an edict. No one may bury the traitor Polynices. So he's the one who left Thebes and then brought the seven against Thebes and failed and killed, was killed. Antigone is a dutiful sister and she buries Polynices. This is discovered, it's reported, and Creon finds out that Antigone has done the illegal as he sees it, but as she sees it, the pious act. In consequence, he decrees the death of Antigone by hanging, and Antigone in fact commits suicide, even though she was engaged to Creon's son, her cousin, uh, Hymen. So that's the next set you, some of you may have seen uh, or read about Antigone and Sophocles, his famous play, Antigone. Again, rather like the Bacchae, horrors, incest, civil war, fraternal uh, murder of each other, fratricide, uh, suicide, uh, you name it. I love, how, how do the woke generation process classical history nowadays? It must be must be quite funny. Well, it's, um, I don't know how far you're aware, but we're going through a process of agonised uh, self-examination uh, because, not because uh, only, um, classical stories tend to be so horrendous because one can learn from them. I mean, part of the point of depicting really awful behaviour is that one learns not to do that. And um, Aristotle, who was the most brilliant uh, intellect, he wrote a work called The Poetics, and he believed, he may have been uh, not entirely right, but at any rate, he argued that the point of an audience going to watch such a horrendous set of things going on on stage, they're not real, this is uh, fiction, this is in the past, this is um, staged, was purification, that you achieve a, a sense of catharsis, that the nastiness that you might wish to commit yourself, you won't do so, because you've seen it being done by others, it's so horrendous that your own soul is as it were purified as a result. So uh, Aristotle wasn't an Athenian, and he um, wouldn't have—he wasn't a contemporary of um, Sophocles and Euripides. But nevertheless, that's a point of view. There's some sort of sense in which you uh, feel pity, as well as feeling terror when you watch a Greek tragedy. And so to that extent, it's educative, it's morally positive rather than negative. I'm so enthralled with all of these myths um, <laughs> that I really think we should do a segment story time with Paul Cartledge because <laughs> I would sit there and listen forever. I've been sitting through the whole time, my face glued to the, to the screen going, oh, wow. He's drooling a little bit. <laughs> But well, we need to talk a little bit about history. Um, so why don't we start with what do we historically, what do we actually know about prehistoric Thebes? Right. So um, as with Homer and the Trojan War, whether there ever really was a 10 year siege of a city overlooking the Dardanelles, as Homer described, very unlikely. 
10 years at any rate and was it 10 months was enough in world war well, one yeah and was it to really to get back a, a stolen print you know queen helen and something all that stuff but if ever there would have been such an expedition in prehistoric as we say time so back to the 13th century bc the late bronze age in archaeological terms that is when that would have happened likewise if there had ever been a dynasty such as the cadmian one and the oedipus one it would have been when thebes was at its um, height in the bronze age in the late bronze age that is in the 14th and 13th centuries that's when the first city walls were built that's when major ones that is when the palace was built palace which like that in mycenae in tyrins in pylos in athens in chania in crete in uh, knossos was based on a literate bureaucracy which kept records mainly economic and it was a kind of distributive center for a region so thebes becomes a big deal in the 14th and 13th centuries but like all those other ones i mentioned before 1200 bc there was a destruction uh, who caused it this is one of those big issues you know was it internal uprising or internal uprising on the back of external invasion was it economic in other words a major drought some sort of climate change all sorts of uh, explanations have been put forward but one of the consequences of the destruction physical of the palace and its archives was that the tablets of clay which weren't meant to be permanent, were made permanent. Because if you burn clay above 900 Celsius, you expel the water and those tablets survive. Well, on the tablets, we call them tablets, were written um, texts about how many of this or that item of equipment, maybe chariots, maybe woolen clothing, and so on, were in the palace um, treasury at the time at which the recording on the clay tablet was made. So we know a little bit, about 250 bits or whole tablets have come from the Kadmaya, the Acropolis, the palace of prehistoric, late Bronze Age Thebes. Then, like elsewhere in Greece, the region of which Thebes is the main city, Boeotia, like elsewhere in um, Messenia, southwest Greece, the Argolid, northeast Peloponnese, Attica, there's a great slump. For hundreds of years, the number of settlements declines, the size, the richness of the settlements, the number of people, all this goes absolutely into what we would call recession, total slump. Literacy of the kind used in the Bronze Age which was a syllabic script disappears and so you've got a totally different some people talk about a dark age maybe two maybe even three centuries before and then this is where we come on to what i call historic themes after about 800 bc so in the 8th century bc bc you've got the first signs of a recovery of settlements growing and increasing in number and in wealth and so on and so on and eventually Actually, literacy is recovered, but this time alphabetic literacy. So A, B, C, D, E, not 
AB as a, a syllable for one sign. So 24, 25 alphabetic letters as against 200 linear B signs and ideograms. So much simpler, potentially much more democratic. And certainly when Homer's poems are um, finally written down in the 8th or 7th century, the alphabet comes in to preserve a text of the Iliad, the Odyssey, and originally of the four Theban epics, which we know about, but none of those four survives as such because they weren't thought worth copying and preserving in the way that the two Homeric poems were. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort. So you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. So during the Archaic period, Thebes becomes the most powerful city in the, is it the Beotian region? Beotian region. How does it become so powerful? So Beotia, that B-O bit is the same beginning of the Greek word for an ox, boots. Mm. And it's thought, therefore, that's possibly the origin, uh, the etymology of the word. And that tells you something, that the land was sufficiently rich in pasture land and in water to be able to rear significant numbers of large cattle. Most of Greece uh, today is not very different from ancient Greece, probably in this respect. Very few parts of mainland Greece can sustain significant herds of cattle. Typically, what are kept in the way of animals are small stock, as they're called, goats and sheep. So you've got in Boeotia, probably, cattle as well. Add on top of that, now this is historical evidence, the Thebans, the historical ones, were able to raise quite significant numbers of cavalrymen. Now most Greeks fought on foot, a very, very few, the richest, fought on horseback or used horses to transport themselves to the battlefield. Thebes was one of the few mainland Greek cities and Boeotia, one of the few mainland Greek areas that could sustain cavalry to any extent. So that tells you, you've got fundamentally, of course, all ancient Greek um, cultures and civilizations were pre-industrial. Yes, there was industry. People made bronze figurines, people made pots. You've got to have something to drink out of, etc. But it was not an industrialized society. 90% or so 
of the typical ancient Greek city's population was directly involved in agriculture. If you like, this is a peasant economy. So the Boeotians and the Thebans would not have been unusual in that respect. What was unusual was the very large plain that the Thebans had access to. And the more powerful they became militarily, the more of it they had access to. However, there was one, um, if you like, fly in the ointment, one um, halt to their even greater power. And that was another city called Orkomenos. And if you go to Boeotia today, you'll just see a single plane between Thebes and Orkomenos. In antiquity, there was a quite large lake, and it's called Kopais, but that was drained, both in antiquity, not completely in antiquity, but in order to get that rich um, land for growing crops. If you drain a lake, then that land, that um, particular soil, is especially fertile. Well, it was partially drained from time to time in antiquity, but in modernity, 19th century, completely drained. So you've got to imagine Thebes, then quite a big lake to the north and west of it, at the edge of which, on the west, was Orkomenos. And Orkomenos had been big in the Bronze Age. Like Thebes, it had a a big um, tomb of a local chieftain and so on. And the rivalry between those two cities was actually what drove the development of Boeotian history. And so historically, Orkomenos, once powerful, gradually becomes less and less powerful in relation to Thebes. I'm going to bring up sanctuaries only because well, I always bring up a sanctuary. I think every, nearly every single podcast I've done on ancient Greece, I have to bring up a sanctuary. <laughs> My question is, is did Thebes have their own sanctuaries? Because for example, you know, there was a sanctuary in Delphi, there was a sanctuary in Athens. Did they have their own? Absolutely. And um, they actually perform a very important function way down at the very end of what I would call the historical period of um, Thebes' history. But I'll come back to that maybe later on. I've already mentioned that Dionysus was in a way a Theban. His mother was from Thebes. Ditto Heracles his mother was from Thebes and so the Thebans obviously devoted their principal religious energies to worshipping those two divinities and Heracles though born half and half half god half man and Dionysus though half god half man they were both regarded as fully divine in terms of the worship that was paid to them. There was a third god that the Thebans were particularly keen on worshipping and he was called Apollo, again a universal Greek god up there on Olympus with um, Dionysus and with um, uh, Heracles, but he was given a particular um, eclat, particular fame in Thebes, because one of his sanctuaries was called that of Apollo Ismenios, and Ismene was the river that goes through, there are actually more than one river, but one of them is called Ismene, and that's also a spring, it's also the name of Antigone's sister, and so on. So Apollo Ismenios had an oracle, and the Oracle of Apollo Ismenios features very prominently, just briefly, but um, in a particular moment of Greek history, middle of the 6th century, King Croesus from Lydia, non-Greek but pro-Greek, in Asia Minor. He wants to know what should he do when 
the Persian Empire is threatening him, this Persian Empire which rose up in Iran in the middle of the 6th century. So he consults four Greek oracles. One of them is the one you've just mentioned, Delphi, the major um, oracular shrine. Another of them is this one in Thebes, and Herodotus, who is the, the first historian, and his history begins just about now when um, the Persian Empire is threatening the kingdom of Lydia, which in turn then threatens the Greeks who live in Asia Minor, which then in turn has impact on Greeks living in mainland Greece and the islands. The only other oracle which got right the question that Croesus put to it, besides Delphi, was the Apollo of uh, Ismenios of Thebes. So the major sanctuaries, the major gods, they're all a male, interestingly, unlike, for example, Athens, which has Athena, and Sparta, which has Athena as its principal goddess. For the Thebans, Dionysus, uh, Heracles, and Apollo. The classical period starts with the Persian Wars. What role does Thebes play in these? Well, I've mentioned that um, Croesus is at the um, junction between the rising Persian Empire in the east, which eventually comes to encompass the entirety of um, the Middle East, as we see, right up to uh, the Aegean in the west, and going over, in fact, the Straits of the Hellespont, the Dardanelles, into northern Greece, into Thrace and Macedonia. Well, that great kingdom of uh, the Persians is one that the Greeks eventually have to come to terms with, Greeks of the mainland. And so round about 500 BC, the Athenians together with Greeks from the island of Euboea, decide to support their, as it were, cousins, fellow Greeks, living in Asia Minor, where they've lived for hundreds of years, against the Persians who have conquered them. There's a rebellion, and the Athenians and the Eretrians send forces, and in fact they burn the local capital of the, the province of Lydia. Uh, which is a Persian now province since the conquest of Croesus and so on and so on back in the middle of the 6th century. For that, first of all, Darius and then his son Xerxes vow not only vengeance, in other words, they need to punish the Athenians and the Eretrians for intervening in what they consider their sphere of influence, but to make sure that it never happens again, Xerxes decides that he wants to conquer mainland Greece, to add that, so to make mainland Greece the western limit of the Persian Empire, which in the east, as I've already said, stretches as far as what is now Pakistan and Afghanistan. So a huge uh, empire which grew within a generation, includes Egypt, by the way, in Africa as well. So the Persian wars are how the Greeks war against the Persians when the Persians come knocking. And they came knocking first in 490 BC. That generates the Battle of Marathon. Thebes didn't need to be involved. That was a direct attack by the Persians, a navy specifically targeted on Athens and indeed Eretria. Ten years later, however, because Marathon was a defeat of the Persians, 
Xerxes mounts what was the biggest amphibious invasion of Europe, in this case, of course, from Asia, the landmass of Europe, before D-Day, June the 6th, 1944. The sources differ, and we've mainly got only Athenian or Greek sources. They, of course, tend to exaggerate, but we tend to think there were about 100,000 land troops and maybe five, 600 um, ships, uh, ships of war. They um, make very clear their intention to invade not just Athens, but all Greece. So Greeks in general in the mainland for two or three years have advanced warning they're going to be invaded. What attitude should they take? There are three possibilities, broadly speaking. One is resist at all cost. The other, give in. We're going to lose. Go over to the Persian side. Third option, try to pretend that you're not on either side. You're neither resisting nor actively supporting, and you hope the Persians will, as it were, ignore you or leave you alone. Well, the Thebans, and this is um, a decisive moment in Theban history because it affects the next 150 years of Theban history, and in a way affects the memory of Thebes forever, decided to go on the Persian side, not to resist, not to um, stay neutral, but to actually give a base, men and um, actual um, support in terms of, okay, you're coming in, you want supplies, you want a base, we've got this lovely walled city for you, please use it as, as your base in central Greece against Athens, against Sparta, who are the principal resisting Greek cities. And for that, the Thebans, because the Persians lost, Thebans, of course, assumed that the Persians would win. Because the Persians lost, Thebes gets severely punished for its, um, what the Greek term is medismos, taking the side of the Medes, um, which means the Persians. After the Persian Wars, Thebes is still being ruled by Athens. How does Thebes actually gain its independence from Athens? Right. There's a little bit of a gap, in other words, after the Persian Wars, before Athens technically takes over, conquers and occupies Thebes and its surrounding territory. But from um, 457 to 447, a decade in the middle of the 5th century, when Athens has become the greatest, most powerful city in terms of its navy, in terms of the numbers of its citizens, the trade, the sophistication, it's also a democracy. Thebes is an oligarchy where it believes that a few rich Thebans should rule all the rest. Athens takes over, as you say, and rules Thebes and the whole of Boeotia for a decade. It gets control after a major battle. It loses control after another major battle. So 10 years of occupation generate obviously great uh, unhappiness and resistance. And the Thebans manage to get together both a resistance force, they rise up in rebellion, and persuade other Boeotians to join them. And there's a major battle fought, a place called Koronia, in Boeotia. And as a result, the Athenians are defeated on land. 
Egypt and they decide that they can cut their losses. In other words, they're not going to fight again to get Thebes directly back under their direct rule. Thebes takes its chance and a treaty is uh, sworn between Athens and Sparta and Thebes is on the side of Sparta, whereby peace breaks out for a few years. Well, in that moment, the Theban oligarchy decide to effect a major internal political reform. They reject the old form of rule, which had uh, led partly, I think, to the Thebans going over to the Persians 30 years before. They have a more moderate form of oligarchy involving more the oceans, lower down the economic scale. And they develop really what is a very sophisticated, by ancient standards, federal state, so that the whole of Boeotia ruled from Thebes. Thebes is the dominant power, but there is a kind of power sharing uh, within the, it's about 17, maybe 20 separate Boeotian cities, which are all now under the leadership of Thebes. It's that federal state, which 15 years or so later, on the side of Sparta, enters into what we call the Athenopeloponnesian or just the Peloponnesian War. So Athens and its allies against Sparta and its allies, including Thebes and the Boeotians, for control of mainland Greece. What becomes of Thebes? Well, Thebes does very well out of that war. It shows what turns out after many vicissitudes to be the winning side. So Sparta wins. The Thebans feel so angry with the Athenians that they want to do to Athens what um, I'm afraid had happened to other cities elsewhere in Greece. That is, they want Athens to be wiped off the map. Now, that sounds pretty extreme, but herbicide, as it's sometimes called, the killing of a city, um, was not unique. It had happened and was not unprecedented. The Spartans, however, think, well, if we accede to the uh, Theban request or demand as their, as it were, prize of war for supporting us, we then leave Thebes as without a rival as a major city in central Greece. Is that good for us? Not necessarily. So they preserve Athens, a much weakened Athens, as a counterpoint between them and Thebes. So it's a kind of triangulation. And that triangulation dominates international Greek politics for the next 30, 40 years. And very broadly speaking, what you see after 404 is Sparta, having once been in the driving seat, able to dictate terms to Thebes, to Athens, and so on and so on, gradually slipping down in terms of power, having more and more internal problems, while, well, it gets a little more uh, complicated in the 380s. The Spartans think it will be in their interests to occupy Thebes. So in other words, we're going back to the Athenians had occupied Thebes in the 450s. Now the Spartans occupy Thebes in the 380s and 370s. And they put a garrison in on top of the Kadmaia, of course. That's where you're bound to put any garrison to keep the Thebans down. Well, not surprisingly, the Thebans start thinking, 
oh well maybe the Athenians aren't so bad at least we haven't got them occupying us now we've got Sparta so the triangulation when Athens is with Thebes against Sparta then it goes Sparta with Thebes against Athens and now it's um, going to be Athens and Thebes against Sparta and so there's a liberation movement Thebes acquires its independence in the 370s and then it becomes the great power quite unpredictably really such that by the end of that decade 371 Thebes is able physically to take on an attacking Spartan force in its own territory so Thebans are on the defensive but they win a major battle at a place called Leuctra and that is actually as it uh, turns out the end of sparta as a major power athens is still there basically naval but thebes very briefly between 371 and 362 is the most important and influential city in the entirety of uh, mainland greece are there any famous Thebans that our listeners should know about? Coincidentally, and of course it's not just coincidentally, but two of the three, I'm just going to give you three, who weren't worth our thinking about, were responsible. They were at the top of that liberation movement and then that period when Thebes is top dog in all of Greece in the 360s. But first I'm going to mention because... The Athenians liked to be rude at the expense of the Thebans, calling them pigs. In other words, they were uncultured. Yes, they had lots of grub, but they were more interested in filling their bellies than in feeding their souls. This is the Athenian propaganda about the Thebans. Actually, it was quite unfair. Uh, there was a very famous Theban poet of the earlier 5th century BC called Pindar. He composed um, odes in praise of victors at the main Panhellenic athletic sports games. But I'm going to concentrate now on one of, um, if you like, his successors as a contributor to Theban culture, a man called Pronomos. Pronomos was a, <clears throat> a man who blew a reeded instrument called an aulos. So when you had music in any Greek tragedy, and there's a lot of music, so that the chorus could dance, the sole musician was somebody who blew a double pipe. It's a reeded instrument, something like our oboe. Well, the f most famous, the best oboist of his generation at the end of the Peloponnesian War period, late 5th century, was a Theban called Pronomos. So famous that the Athenians would hire him to be their flautist at a performance of an Athenian tragedy. You wouldn't have known that, would you, if you'd just listened to Athenian propaganda? Mm. Right, then I mentioned Thebes becomes a briefly top dog in the entirety of Greece, 360s. The two men most responsible for that were first Pelopidas and secondly Epaminondas. Pelopidas we know relatively more about because Plutarch 
Burke, who was of Boeotian, much later, but wrote biographies of famous ancient Greeks. Well, one of the ones he chose to write a biography was Pelopides, and that survives. Another one he wrote a biography was of Epaminondas, but sadly that doesn't survive, so we know much more about Pelopides. At any rate, Pelopides led the resistance to the occupation of Sparta, uh, by the Spartans round about 380-379 BC. Epaminondas then becomes the supreme general, the architect of Theban politics, both domestically and internationally. And what he did most of all, after the Battle of Neuctra, for which he was the principal general of the Thebans, the victory over the Spartans, he leads a massive invasion of Sparta's territory down in the southern Peloponnese and at a stroke deprives Sparta of half its territory for good. And in order to make sure that Sparta never recovered that territory, he founds, he's the new Cadmos, if you like, two Greek cities, one Messini, one Megalopolis, one in Messenia, one in Arcadia. And the one in uh, Messenia meant that at a stroke again, Epaminondas has liberated thousands of Greeks from servitude because the Spartans for centuries had kept the Messenians in a form of serfdom, if you like, slavery, making them work for Spartan masters, mainly as agriculturalists, as farmers. So Epaminondas, the great liberator, um, he sadly, or at least I think sadly, died in another of these major, major battles uh, in 362 BC, battle fought in the Peloponnese at Mantinea. And that, again, in retrospect, though the Thebans won that battle, that really is the end of them as a major, major power in the way they had been before. And I think if you if you have time for me, I would just like to end with this. But the Greek world after Theban hegemony, the period of Theban supreme power, comes to be dominated by the king of Macedon up in the north, Philip of Macedon and his son Alexander. Thebans don't alike. They don't want to be again dominated and occupied as they have been more than once in the past. They rise up against the Macedonians and unfortunately with the, with the Athenians. But Alexander and Philip are much stronger. The Macedonian army is too strong, even for the united Theban and Athenian armies. Wins a terrific victory. Thebes is then um, put under a garrison, under control. It loses its previous constitution, so on and so on. Uh, then Alexander's father is assassinated, Philip. Alexander takes over the big campaign, which is to conquer the Persian Empire. That brings um, memories of previous invasion of Greece by Persia 140 years before. But before he can go over Alexander to join the army in Asia, Thebes, under garrison, under control, blah, 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 revolts. So it's a bit like... Um, the Greeks who revolted against the Persians at the beginning of the 5th century BC, 
now Greeks revolt against Macedonian Greeks. They are utterly crushed and Alexander, to make sure that Thebes never again poses a threat, has the entirety of the city laid waste, destroyed, the walls knocked down, all the houses, with two exceptions, religious sanctuaries. Remember, we were talking about them. Alexander does not destroy those. He wants all the gods, all the heroes to be on his side when he goes over to Persia. And secondly, he spares the house lived in by descendants of that poet I mentioned, Pindar. So that's a kind of gesture to culture that he's recognising Pindar was a Panhellenic, all Greek celebrant of Greeks. And so Alexander's presenting himself as going to conquer the Persians on behalf of all the Greeks. Why does he treat Thebes so badly? Look Well, look how it had behaved in the Persian Wars 140 years before. Traitors. And um, Alexander used that as his justification for destroying Thebes. And Thebes never recovered after the city revived. 20 years later, but it was never anything like what it had once been in the 4th century BC. So your book will be added and available on uh, historyhacksbookshop.org page. But before we go, can you tell us what it's called and why people need to go out and buy it? Thank you. It's Thebes, the forgotten city of ancient Greece, forgotten by comparison to Athens, Sparta, Macedon. And it's going to be reissued very shortly in paperback in in June. It was originally issued because of the lockdown as an e-book, possibly still available, then in hardcovers towards the end of 2020. And as I say, a slightly corrected version in paperback will be available in uh, June of 2021. And thank you so much for giving it an airing. No, thank you so much for coming to join us. Alina was so, so, so excited. You've been on her wish list forever. <laughs> I'm so glad I finally sent you that email and said, please come on board and, and join us. So thank you so much. Thanks, both of you. When our guests join us to talk about their work and their new book, the 45 minutes or so they spend with us is just a taster of all their efforts. So to this end, we have launched our very own bookshop on bookshop.org where you can find our guests' latest and greatest books. You can support them, and you can support History Hack too. 10% of every sale via our bookshop supports the podcast and allows us to keep at it and bring you more amazing guests. You can find our bookshop at bookshop.org forward slash shop forward slash hack history, or just search on bookshop.org for us under the shops bit. Thank you for your continued support, and here's to your next great book. Don't forget that we do exist on Patreon as History Hack and on Patreon as well, which is Podbean's own version. Uh, Alina and I have had massive fun doing this in 2020, uh, but life's going to change quite a lot next year and we're going to actually have to go and earn a living, etc. If we want to keep up the regularity that we've been bringing you and the kind of guests that we've been bringing you and the workload, then we will need your help. So uh, if you join... There's going to be incentives for joining on either of those platforms. We're revamping ourselves on both of them. So don't forget to go in. You can do as little as a dollar a month and it all goes towards keeping up History Hack as regular as we've been able to bring it to you this year.